Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. If you were to give a pastor a chance to choose one passage of Scripture he would prefer not to preach on and could just kind of give it a pass, this would probably fit in the top five of those Scriptures because it's what the world has done to the word submission. It's how the world views what they think Christianity is teaching regarding submission. But I'd like to say... First of all, if you're a woman here today, give this message a chance. Before you check out, give this message a chance. If you are somebody who thinks that you know what this message is saying because you've read through the passage, verses 1 through 7 in 1 Peter, give this message a chance. I'm approaching this one differently than a lot of passages that I've done because I've got to peel away that which this passage is not saying which means I've got to get rid of some of those filters the world has tried to place on this passage so that what we're left with is truth. And when you get past all the filters and you get to the truth, then I think this is going to be an empowering, enriching, joy-filled service. And it's going to be a passage that you ladies are going to see is something that you want to cling to. I really believe that. It's not been one that's been easy for me to tackle. Uh, some weeks, it's more of a wrestling match to get ready for Sunday than others, and this was one of those wrestling match weeks. And there were a couple of aha moments that I finally arrived at when I was getting, especially toward the end of verse 6, which will take a lot more time at the end. I'm going to race through the first couple of points so we have more time for verse 6. Because when you start to see the context, scriptural context, and understand what Peter's trying to say here, boom, it's going to blow your mind. I really think this is one of those times when you start to get good uh, interpretive principles at work, and you don't just take it at face value, what you think it means, but you dive into it and find out, what is God teaching me through this? It's going to blow your minds. All right, are you ready? Have I built the tension enough to keep you with me already? Okay, here we are. Simon Peter. He's getting even more specific. We're moving from generals to specifics because we saw how he was saying that if we're going to be different, peculiar, treasured children of God, which is what that word picus in Latin meant, a treasured uh, possession of God, one of his sheep in his fold, if we're going to be that kind of peculiar, it's going to make us different from the world. So we will be peculiar. And the way we do that is by submitting to different authority figures. He even went so far as to say, even though Nero was such a rascal back then in Rome, he said, but even the emperor, you're supposed to give allegiance to that emperor unless he tells you to do something that goes outside of God's will, but yield to the authority of the human governments that God has put in your uh, societies because they're there hopefully to bring justice about. Then he gets more specific and he starts saying, and even those who are appointed by the emperor, and now he's getting even more specific and he's bringing it right down to the family level. And he says, 
Wives, I've got some words for you. And then he saves his best for last. So guys, don't check out with me. Wait until you get to verse 7. <laughs> There's something in here for you too. But he says, right at the beginning, 1 Peter 3, and I'm going to just read us through this brief passage, and then I'll start unpacking it and peeling away the layers, like I said. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself. In the same way is important. Because we see that Christ was our example. So in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Notice again, they may be won over. So that's going to give us a clue about one of the things that this passage is not telling us when we get there. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. You don't have to look like a magazine picture in order to win your husband's heart. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. And I would say, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is classic. It's always in style. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. And then he says, as though you needed an illustration, let me provide one from the Old Testament. He says, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Don't get hung up on that. We're going to explain it. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. This one verse caused me more agony this week than any of the others in this passage, and we're going to look very seriously and in-depth at this verse toward the end of this message, and it's going to be a mind-blowing, aha, light bulb moment. It's going to be 220 watts above every head here. Are you ready? Okay. Husbands, verse 7, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, as though, don't get hung up on this either. As the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. I'll just go ahead and insert one thing real quick. The weaker partner here literally was at a time when husbands had to physically fight off other people at times. And physically, they were, generally speaking, more powerful than their wives. Don't think of this as being less valuable. Weaker does not mean less valuable. Keep that in mind. So that nothing will hinder your prayers, he says to these men. Okay, now... Let's start unpeeling some of this thing. These are some things that submission is not. You cannot grab them from this passage, even though there are people who have tried to impose these things on this passage. Submission is not agreeing on every issue, including your religious belief system. Husbands and wives, you don't even have to raise your hands. I know this for a fact. No husband and wife always agrees on every issue. We just don't. I mean, there have been knockdown, drag-out fights over which way you hang the toilet paper. It should go over the top, by the way, but <laughs> just wanted to settle that dispute in case anybody was wondering. Submission is not agreeing on every issue, especially and in including your religious belief system. If there are some people, and I know that there are, because I know there's some very wonderful people that I know personally as friends who are married to unbelieving spouses. Both husbands and wives goes both ways on that. If your spouse is not a believer, that doesn't mean that you are supposed to just simply nod in agreement with whatever their belief system happens to be and that you chuck your belief system in the bin. 
Peter does not say that. And so if anybody sees this and thinks that submission means that I have to give up my faith in Christ because my husband or my wife doesn't agree with that, that's not what this is saying. Submission is not putting another person's will before the will of Christ. That means, let's say, I'm going to try to use an example. I'm going to use some euphemisms so that I don't get too crass here. Let's say that there's a husband who's not a believer. He is thinking that our marriage has grown a bit stale. There are certain aspects of our marriage that has grown stale. A man has needs. I think we ought to do fill in the blank in order to spice up our marriage. And the wife says, I can't do that. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. There are certain things that if it goes outside of God's will, you have to very kindly and compassionately and with a winsome spirit say, I love you, I'm committed to you, I am faithful to you, but I will not do that because it takes me outside the realm of my allegiance to Jesus Christ, and that's where I have to draw a line. And you can do that without fighting, without screaming, without stomping your foot. You can do it quietly and be as strong as a rock. And sometimes the other person may not like that. And they can choose their consequences for what they choose to do with that. But you can draw the line and say, God will not allow me to do that. My allegiance is to Christ. He gave his life for me. And I will not step over this line that you're asking me to step over. Submission is not putting another person's will before the will of Christ. Number three, submission is not giving up your God-given ability to think for yourself. You don't put that in a box and stick it on a shelf way up high in the closet and say, okay, well, I'm supposed to submit, so I'm just going to let him do the thinking for me or vice versa. You are allowed to and encouraged to think for yourself, and you should. Number four, submission is not giving up on getting your way. Simon Peter never says, don't try to influence them. Remember when I spoke very early when we were reading through that, when he was saying, win them over. The whole point of this seven verses in his letter is, win them. Win the unbeliever and do so through your actions, which are going to be winsome and Christ-like and that gentle and quiet spirit. It's not giving up on getting your way. One of the things that I love to take couples through when we do pre-marriage counseling is the wish list segment. I've mentioned that before. And you start saying, you each get three wishes, and you need to tell your spouse-to-be what you wish they would do more or less of. Oh, man. Almost invariably, the wife starts just writing all this stuff down. She fills up a sheet of paper, and the husband's sitting there going, "Uh, I can't come up with anything. She goes first. The wives have a hard time giving their wish list to their husband by saying, honey, Because I love you, I wish that you would, and then be able to honestly say what they wish he would do more or less of. Sometimes it's, I wish you would actually hear me out and listen when I have something to say before interrupting me and trying to solve the problem. That happens a lot with guys. When we start giving up on getting our way, we start entrenching ourselves quietly in our perspective, and we start forgetting that they can't read our minds And things get bad because all you're doing is just lighting a long fuse. And you're packing dynamite that's going to explode someday. Don't give up on getting your way. Ladies, this applies to you too. I hereby give you my pastoral permission for you to be able to speak up and to give your husband winsomely now, treat them with respect, but you're allowed to tell them what you would like them to do more or less of. You're allowed to do that. 
That's a part of good communication. Number five, submission does not mean you give up trying to influence the other person. Like I said, the whole point of Peter's letter is so that she will influence this non-believer in this particular illustration, which he provides for us. And I've seen this go both ways, husbands and wives. Does not mean you're giving up influencing the other person. You should, by all means, influence that other person. You ought to live in such a way that that husband has noticed, this is if it's a wife, that the husband would know there is something unique and different about this lady that I've married. What in the world is going on? And he's going to want to ask questions, and he's going to be interested in what you're reading and in that retreat that you went to and why you came back different and why you're starting to read a certain book that's showing up on your bedside table. You should influence the unbeliever by the way you live. So submission doesn't mean that you chuck that either. Don't become like the world to try to influence him. He goes abundantly specific with this by saying you don't have to look like the world tries to look. Your beauty doesn't have to come from outward adornment. Now, it's okay if you want to wear a little makeup now and then. I had one pastor, he's from United Kingdom, and he used to have this little song. He would say, little bit of powder, little bit of paint. Makes a girl look pretty when she really ain't. <laughs> His wife didn't like that when he would say that. He would say, if you want to use a little makeup, that's all right. That's good. You know, it'll just look like you, but in color. <laughs> and so it's okay if you want to do that. But Peter's job is to say, but don't go overboard. You don't have to dress like some magazine, you know, they didn't have the magazines back then, I don't think, like we have today, but you get the point, right? You don't have to look exactly like the world thinks somebody ought to look in order to be enticing. What's enticing is that inner beauty. And guys go crazy for that gentle, quiet spirit of somebody that shows you respect. Guys love that. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. You remember the Highlights magazines? I used to see them in my doctor's office when I was going to see my pediatrician when I was a kid. I used to like that because you could look, open up to the page that would say, find the seven differences in these two almost identical pictures. And you go, oh, I found one. Hell, this person that came before me circled them. Don't do that. You know highlights. So they always had this goofus and gallant cartoon. It was a two-panel kind of a thing. And it would show something, some problem that they were dealing with. And goofus would say it one way and gallant would say it another. And my sanctified imagination starts to think that Simon Peter could be there writing a goofus and gallant segment to go in with his letter, and that he would say things like, goofus would say, honey, that car is still making that noise again. You still haven't taken it in. I've been driving this for six weeks like that. You don't even care that the back wheel could fall off. You don't even care that I could be careening into the middle of the road and the freeway at 70 miles an hour and there would be me splayed all over the highway. You don't even care. That's how Goofus might say it. Gallant might say it. Honey, I know you've been really busy lately. And I know your plate is just so full. So I've got next Tuesday off. Would this help take a little bit off your plate and give you some relaxation for that day if I were to take the car in and get it looked at at the mechanic? I'd be happy to do that if you'd like for me to. You see the quiet, gentle spirit as opposed to the, I'm going to use sarcasm and I'm going to just always throw this stuff in your face and I'm going to say things in such a way that's going to put you down. You see the difference? Men love to feel respected. 
And this gentle, quiet spirit does not mean that you have to throw everything out with the bathwater. It means you're going to be really affected. Because the man may be the head of the household, but the woman knows how to turn that head. And she can with a quiet and gentle spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit is always in style. It's classic. Number six, submission does not mean that a wife gets all her spiritual strength from her husband. And she should not anyway. Husbands and wives can gain a lot from each other, but in this example that Peter gives, she's not getting anything spiritually from her husband. She has to get her spiritual strength elsewhere. She's got to be hanging out with fellow believers. They've got to be doing the apostles' teaching together. Maybe going out for whatever kind of coffee they drank back then or something. They've got to be meeting together regularly so that she can talk about her love for and her devotion to Jesus Christ when she can't do that at home because her husband may not want that. So that doesn't mean that you have to stop surrounding yourself with other believers. It means, yes, you need them all the more, but while maintaining a fidelity with your husband. And then also, submission. This is where we start to get into verse 6. Submission does not mean that a wife lives in fear. Let me unpack verse 6 for you. It looks a little complicated on the surface until you get to the right context. And then all of a sudden, it just becomes three-dimensional, and it all starts to fall into place. First half of verse 6. Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, that was simply an expression that they would use in that culture, which meant that she recognized his role over the extended household. And he might have a lot of servants and other people because the oikos, the household, included not only their family, but their extended family and their servants and everybody who worked with them. So if you were a Lord over all those people, that was the way that they referred to them as. Joy will uh, kind of tease me a little bit because sometimes that I will need something and she will know that I will need that, but I'm in a situation where I can't just hop up and go get it for myself. So a couple of times she has walked over and she's presented whatever I've needed to me and sat it right on my chair and then she's gone like this and backed up. <laughs> and, and I say, you know, Sarah called Abraham Lord. She says, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> But she will call me a husband because she understands that role. And she is submitting to the role of husband even though she knows that I'm not lording over that role because that's why verse 7 comes in. So submission of role doesn't diminish value. Where do we see that before? Oh, yes, in the Trinity. Jesus Christ submitted even unto his death and he was co-equal with God. He was God. Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet, there's this submission. It's a willing submission. God puts certain roles in place for a reason. And if we learn to submit to those authority figures or to the one who has the role of the final decision maker, things just go better. Notice that in every team, there has to be an ultimate leader. I've tried to be a co-leader on different teams before in school. doesn't work. It doesn't work. Eventually, one of the two people that are called a co-leader winds up becoming the default leader. They just don't call it that. I'll guarantee you, every team has to have one ultimately person who, if nobody else can make a final decision, that person has to make the final decision. That's why I think God knew in his infinite mercy and his omniscience that even in a marriage, somebody has to wear that role, and in his case, it's the husband. And if he wears it correctly, he's a protector and he's a pro-visionary. Provision means that you're looking ahead to make sure that she has what she needs to feel cherished and cared for and safe. 
and protected. Every team, there has to be a leader. Football's got to be a one guy who's the go-to guy. There's a quarterback. Can you imagine if 11 people are on there who are trying to arrive at a consensus of what their play should be next? Chaos at work. There has to be one person that eventually makes that final decision. In a marriage, Joy and Callie and I had a great discussion about this because I was wrestling through this passage this week. And I realized a couple of times when I've shot myself in the foot and learned a terrible lesson it's because I didn't listen long enough to understand what the true consensus was. And I said, no, we're doing it. I'm going anyway. And I did that without taking into consideration what my wife had to say about it. And I regretted it. One of them was that I bought a car that turned out to be a lemon. Man, if it would have been a good car, I might have not have felt so bad about it. But I shouldn't have done that. I should have listened to her cautions. And I should have said, no, I'm going to wait. And until we're in agreement about this, I'm not going to spend that much money. If we're both in agreement, then we're going to spend that money. Because money, as you know, is a very contentious subject in marriage. So we've learned that there has to be an ultimate leader, but the leader's got to listen. And when he knows that the wife is being cared for and that she's being well listened to, then when he makes a decision, he says, okay, I think our minds are clear. This is the direction we should go. I'm pulling it. I'm going for it. On a rare occasion, though, sometimes... She'll say, you know, I don't have a strong opinion about this. You make the call. That's, that's okay. Go for it. And in many situations, I let her make the call as well, and that's okay. I'll say, you know, this is not a make-it-or-break-it issue for me, so you make the decision on that, and I'll back you up on it. Let's go for it. Because I can trust her. She can do that. So every team has to be an ultimate leader. She defers to the authority figure because it's the role that I carry, not necessarily because I'm smarter, because she's so smart. In certain areas, she's a lot smarter than I am. But this doesn't have to do with who's the most intelligent in the couple. It has to do with the role that God has given us. Uh, another pastor, this is an aside, but it was a good one. Another pastor that I read uh, about this subject from had said that in his church several years ago, there was a couple, the man had an eighth grade education. He was good with his hands, but he wasn't an academic. He didn't have, you know, three degrees. The wife was super intelligent. She was accomplished. She was good at everything she did. And he preached on this subject, and they came up to him afterwards, and the husband said, Pastor, what happens if your wife is just so much more intelligent than you are, and she's good at everything? He said, that doesn't have anything to do with leadership. He said, I'm serious. It doesn't have anything. He said, yeah, but I, I mean, I'm dyslexic. I can't even read very well. And he goes, so? Pastor said, can you say, hey, kids, we're going to have family devotions tonight? And he goes, yeah, I can say that. Can you say, here's a Bible. Johnny, would you read this passage for us? Yeah, I think I could do that. And he goes, okay, that's leadership. He said, you need to take the initiative in leadership, and it's not about who's the smartest or the most intelligent or the most efficient or whatever. And, and this same pastor said, my wife is so much smarter in so many areas than I am. I'm married up. What can I say? I feel that way in a lot of areas, but that's why we're complementary and not in competition with one another. That's the way we were established in the beginning. Even in Genesis, the word in Hebrew that uses for coupling people together means face-to-face -face because it's literally like a puzzle. We fit together. We complement each other. We're so good for each other when we do it God's way. So, he says, then, Second part of verse 6, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. That causes a lot of consternation. And in looking up lots of different people who are trying to interpret it, there are about three basic main options that come about. I think the person who did the, the amplified version of the Bible chickened out and put all three of them in there. 
Even though I really don't agree with the first two very well. I'm just being upfront with you about that. <laughs> In context, those who have faith, first I have to explain what this daughter thing is about. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. It says so in Galatians 3.7. So if Abraham, his father Abraham, had many sons because God promised him to bless all the nations through his descendants, right? That's why he's father Abraham. All believing uh, people who are believers in Christ now are sons, so to speak, of father Abraham. So what does that make Sarah? She's the mother of faith. So it says these women, if you're a daughter of Sarah, it's the same thing as being a child of Abraham. So it's a descendant spiritually of these two people who have been held up as an example of people of faith. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now we have to figure out what that don't give way to fear means. Three options. Don't fear your abusive husband. And I've actually heard some preachers use this, and I think very inappropriately. Women, I'm not telling you that you should live in fear of your husband and submit to him regardless of how he treats you. No, no, no. If you fear being hurt, get out. I'm as serious as I can be. There's always a time when if somebody is in fear of being harmed, you can send a strong message to somebody by getting into a safe place, even if it's temporarily until that person understands, oh, there are consequences for my actions. Where do I get that? I get it from two different people. First of all, Abraham wasn't abusive. There's nowhere in Scripture that we see Abraham was abusive and that Sarah just put up with that. So I just completely flat out call that first option wrong. Secondly, Jesus protected women. You're probably, many of you, probably familiar with that time when a woman was caught in the very act of adultery, it says in the New Testament, and people were getting ready to stone that woman, and Jesus walked up. We don't know what he wrote, but he wrote something in the sand, and all these men that were holding stones dropped the stones and walked away. So Jesus protected women. Godly husbands should protect women. If he's not a godly husband, and if he's not protecting you, you have permission to get to safety. I hope I'm as clear as I can be on that. Secondly, that live so you won't fear being found unfaithful. The reason for that is because of a transliteration of this. It's very clunky, and we just don't have a good, strong transliteration coming to English from the Greek. Some people have tried to do it from the Septuagint. There are just some things that get clunky. The languages just don't mesh. Sometimes there's not a word for it. So we have to make up a word and call it dogadiga or something. But are not afraid with any amazement, is what that's coming across as. You are her children if you do what's right and are not afraid with any amazement. And you're going, okay. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Some people have tried to force it to mean that you're not afraid in something that would create awe or shock. And that you don't want to live in such a way that you're going around behind your husband's back so that he would be shocked or amazed if he found out that you're doing something because you're somehow unfaithful to him. I think that's a wild stretch. I don't know where the commentators actually find that from there. I don't buy it. I disagree with the amplified version, and I would like to just scratch through the first two options and get to the third because I think it makes more sense. Don't fear God's power to accomplish the impossible. In the context... Anytime today somebody thinks about Abraham and Sarah, one of the first stories that ever comes to mind is that amazing miracle that God accomplished through them because when Abraham was 99 years old, God spoke to him and said, you're going to have a son. And he's going, 
uh, excuse me? No, I'm 99. You want to see my driver's license? I'm 99. God says, no, it's going to happen, and I'm going to bring it to, to pass. Now, remember that he had already had one child, Ishmael, because they tried to do it their own way, but this is going to be the son of promise. And as he is doing this, he's sending a messenger. There's this conversation that's going on. Sarah overhears this, and your wife Sarah is going to become pregnant in her old age. And she chuckles to herself. She's like, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm well beyond childbearing years. Does anybody know about menopause? Come on, hello. And God says, why did, uh, why did she laugh that way? And she tries to deny it. Oh, I didn't laugh. And he goes, nah, you did. You did. And I'm just here to tell you, he has told Abraham already, he says, is there anything impossible for God? Is there anything too hard for God to accomplish? So he's given them that wonderful thing, you know, that's going to happen to them. He's told them this is that proclamation. Guess what happens a year later? Sure enough, at age 100, Isaac, laughter, is born. So women don't need to fear God's miraculous power to accomplish the impossible. I think this is getting more at the crux of what Peter's trying to say. Even though there may be some fear and trepidation involved, it's not the fear of amazement that your husband's going to find out that you've been stepping out on him. That makes no sense to me. Now, certainly, you should not step out on your husband. Clearly. I mean, that's just obvious. But when it's taking it into the realm of amazement, I think it's attaching this to what people think about, including Simon Peter, with what God did through Sarah and Abraham. And so, women, you don't need to fear God's miraculous power to accomplish the impossible. Keep living with a quiet and gentle spirit. Influence your husband. By all means, influence him. Live in such a way that prayerfully, he's going to be drawn to the Christ in you. And don't be afraid for God to do the impossible because he still does. We see evidence of it all the time. So, I've peeled back all the things that people have tried to put on this passage that it's not. Let me come up with a balanced biblical view of what I think it is, and I'm going to wrap it up. Here's a balanced biblical view. A wife can submit to a husband by deferring to his role as the head of the household without compromising her belief in Christ. A husband can become a true leader by treating his wife as a treasure, a cherished treasure. He supports her, protects her, encourages her to be the person God created her to be. And when a believing wife is married to a not-yet-believing husband, she can win him over by her gentle, quiet spirit and by living out her Christ-like character. That's what I think this passage, verses 1 through 7 in 1 Peter 3, is telling us today. That's not so bad, is it? In fact, I see that it's miraculous and it's just filled with the Holy Spirit at work and causes us to say, thank God that he's still in the business of doing this kind of stuff for us. And women, you should feel empowered. This is an empowering passage for you. You look at a lot of the New Testament passages, and at a time when women, unfortunately, are not being treated very well, we had the whole Me Too movement, we've gotten horrible statistics that show that there's a large percentage of women who have suffered greatly under the hands of men who shouldn't be behaving the way they behaved. The New Testament should let you know you're cherished, you matter to God, you matter to us. And we pray that God's going to give you this wonderful ability to do what Sarah had done. And you'll be a child of Sarah. You'll be a believing person who is a descendant of Sarah and Abraham. And that if you're married, even, to an unbeliever, that someday he'll come to faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, 
There's so much tension in our world today around subjects like the role of a man and a woman. The world has become so confused and they become so angry and they're so unhappy so much of the time. And there's just a whole lot less anxiety if we'll relax into your grace and understand what you desire for all of us. When we understand why you created us in the order you created for us, things just work better. And I pray that as people start to look into your word for what it really says, and that they can stop looking through the world's filters and see what you want for us, what your heart looks like. We'll see a great, loving God who wants the very best for all of us. I pray, Father, that for those out there that may be suffering because of some inequality, because of a misunderstanding, even of this scripture, that you'll clear up that misunderstanding. And I pray that you'll help women to feel valued and protected and cherished. And I pray for men in this church and in our society that they will learn how to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.